The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and this week I'm joined by Jeremy Gilbert to discuss Maurizio Lazzarato's new book, Experimental Politics. You can listen to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes and Acast and you can also follow on Facebook and Twitter at Poll Theory Other. Jeremy is Professor of Cultural and Political Theory at the University of East London and he's also the author of Common Ground, Democracy and Collectivity in an Age of Individualism, which is published by Pluto Press. He's also currently running a fantastic lecture series called Culture Power Politics, which I strongly recommend checking out. One of the recent talks is by Maurizio Lazzarato, who we'll be discussing today. I'll share a link to the audio recording of that lecture in the description of today's podcast. Jeremy wrote the introduction from Maurizio's book, and he was also one of the translators I began the interview by asking Jeremy how he first became acquainted with Lazzarato's work and how he ended up working on the book. Well, um, I mean, Lazzarato was a kind of um, pretty widely cited sort of reference point at the moment when there was a big wave of interest in sort of post sort of operismo work in, um, uh, you know, coming out of the publication of Empire and then for a few years after that. I, I was, so I was reading him uh, partly because of that, but also um, he's also he was connected to the journal Multitudes, uh, the French journal, well, Multitudes, um, which again was sort of inspired by the kind of publication of that work of uh, Hot and Their Grease, but was also in, in has often been a lot actually. I mean, in some ways, like much kind of wider ranging and much more sort of theoretically. Sort of complicated actually than than just being sort of focused on their project and uh, so I came I was sort of became aware of it that way uh, and I was just reading you know I was trying to read um, as much as I could of work that was informed by Adelizan Guattari and uh, and related thinkers but also had a clearly sort of political focus. Um, uh, so he was a fairly obvious person to read, and I was read. Um, I think the first, the thing I read that I was really interested in initially was actually a book called *Les Révolutions du Capitalisme*, which there's no there's no better translation than *The Revolutions of Capitalism*, and it's still it's quite a clunky way to translate the phrase, um, which has not been translated, and I think is never going to be translated. There was some issue. There's issues around nobody knowing exactly who owns the copyright. Uh, and also Maurizio's kind of completely lost interest, I think, in that phase of his work and sort of, sort of rejects it to some extent now. Um, but I thought it was a really interesting piece of work and I still cite it sometimes when I'm uh, writing about music because I think it actually offered a really interesting set of ideas for thinking about the sort of politicality of, um, sort of, of uh, cultural forms like music. Um, but that wasn't, that wasn't at all the kind of intention of, of the work. Um, and so I actually got in touch with, I got in touch with Maurizio and I got, cause I, I mean, we had sort of mutual friends. I think I probably got his e email address from, I'm not sure. I, th I think I just emailed him via the multitude website. Actually, I was going to say, I thought I, I might, uh, I could have got it from Titiana Tirana, but I think, I think I just emailed him via the multitude's website. Actually, I mean, he wasn't sort of hard to find. Uh, and he sort of, you know, he emailed back and said, you know, there was, you know, he, it was kind of a, there was a big problem with the whole idea of getting that book translated or kind of republished because uh, there were these complications around the who owned the copyright. But he was do, he'd done this uh, this he was doing this new book, this, um, which was you know uh, experimentation politique, uh, which he was much more interested in sort of getting translated soon. Uh, and at the time, nothing basically none of his books had come out in English, so it seemed like a sort of fairly 
important thing to do and it was you know it was a really interesting book it, did, it does offer a really interesting kind of analytical framework for thinking about the politics of neoliberalism and and, uh, and also just for showing the ways in which the thought of Deleuze and Guattari can be brought into dialogue with the work of people like Foucault and actually used as a, as a genuine set of tools for political analysis of concrete situations of struggle um which is just not the way it's used normally in france or in the english-speaking world and so i got together a group of people to help with it i mean the idea was we would get this translation done as a group project really quickly and it didn't it didn't really happen that way at all because i mean really because um i sort of took on the job of translating the Bigger, sort of twice as big a chunk as anyone else, and then being the kind of editor of the entire thing, and I, and it just that this was sort of um, this was when we had one child, but we hadn't yet started to have another one, and then sort of pretty much soon after, pretty much as soon as I'd started, Joe got pregnant with our second child, and uh, that really puts a spanner in the works of any sort of uh, organised plans you might have for a few years to come. So. So the project kept getting sort of done in little bursts in between other things that had to take priority. And then we had to, uh, once we finally did finish the translation um, uh, and I edited it all, we had a whole issue uh, with the publishers um, initially having given it to a copy editor. They made kind of problematic interventions uh, but also we we sort of we and by this point some of Maritz, by the time we were actually you know getting close to going into publication uh, some of Maurizio's work was you know coming out and in fact work you know subsequent books were coming out more regularly in English uh, kind of quite soon after they were published in French but they were coming out in those semiotext editions you know no index no introduction no footnotes no kind of uh, sort of apparatus for. Uh, um, an English-speaking audience who don't necessarily know the intellectual context that he's coming from. So we really wanted to make sure that this was a sort of scholarly edition in, in a certain sense. I mean, not in the sense of, you know, being a sort of scholastic work rather than a, a political work, but, you know, we wanted to at least have an index and we, and we wanted it to have a sort of substantial uh, introduction. So, I mean, the other people who helped on the translation were, I mean, there's a whole bunch of people. There's uh, Mark Haywood, Jason Reed. Andy Goffey, uh, Ariana Beauvais, and then, and then Alberto Toscano had actually already translated uh, the, the short pieces that were uh, presented as appendices in the in the French volume. He'd already translated them for uh, for radical philosophy because they were given as papers at a conference in London. So we we used those as well. But I think, yeah, I mean, the point of the sort of introductory essay was that apart from a sort of short, a really short article by Alberto in Theory, Culture, and Society about 10, 10 12 years ago, uh, there wasn't a kind of sort of a single piece of writing, you know, sort of that tried to introduce uh, sort of Maurizio's, any of Maurizio's work in any sort of um, substantial way to an English-speaking audience. And I think it's really important. Uh, and I think... I mean, historically, the translation of sort of Parisian radical philosophy into the English-speaking context has very often been through a process which has really, I think, sort of implicitly or, or even explicitly depoliticised the work by taking it out of its political context, by not really explaining to the kind of Anglophone readership what the political stakes are of the arguments that are being made. So we were sort of you know we were very committed to avoiding that so the sort of the introduction that that introductory essay is you know is really a, a you know an attempt to make sure that 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 isn't what happens at, at least with that book so why do you think that the uh, the stripping out of the political from continental theoretical work happens yeah sure i mean i would say that's just that's hegemony that's hegemony for you i mean that's you know, they're rare done. That that process has really been going on since the late seventies, early eighties. You know, during the period of neoliberal hegemony, and not just neoliberal hegemony, actually. But here, we would have to talk about the the persistent hegemony just of liberalism and the liberal mm. liberal political thought in the anglophone academy. Um, 
and under the, and it's you know liberalism liberalism for the majority of the kind of middle class english speaking middle classes is, is so hegemonic and so normative that they they don't even recognize they don't recognize it as an ideology that they have they don't even recognize they don't recognize it as an ideology that they have just the, the way in which rational people look at the world so sure. so they just read and that's how they kind of read things and i i think specifically in the 80s during the, the kind of high moment of sort of capital F, capital T, French theory in the English-speaking academy, the main, not everyone, but the main people who were reading it, translating it, promoting it, were basically looking for something which was an alternative either to uh, lines of thought and theory which were explicitly allied to revolutionary Marxism or to the politics of conservatives or uh, reactionary politics of the, the new right. Or, and it's kind of, you know, analogue say within literary studies and I think you know it's a pretty simple maxim but if, if you're defining yourself against the conservative right and the revolutionary left you are a liberal yeah, that is what you are and um, essentially that's how people got read and the, I mean it's not true of everyone I mean that's not true of everyone and it's not true of all the people doing the translating but I think definitely that that situation and that set of priorities like very much affected the ways in which things get read got read and who got read so i you know i always say this i, mean, I said this at the seminar last night with Maurizio, but the reason nobody still nobody reads guitari is because you can't read guitari that way you can't you, you can't you can't misread guitari as a liberal so he doesn't really get read you know, sort of, you know literary studies or kind of english speaking humanities etc um Derrida, on the other hand, is very, very easy to read as a liberal. It's not entirely clear he isn't just a sort of fancy liberal. I, I think you can read him as not being one, but that, that reading is not at all the one that, that sort of, you know, was popularised, uh, you know, within Anglophone literary studies. Or So I think, um, but I think, that, you know, that's the simple answer really, is that that's the, I mean, that it's that liberalism constitutes a sort of, horizon of interpretation a kind of sort of invisible horizon of interpretation for the people doing that work but also that that's what they were looking for in it what they were looking for in that work to a large extent and this is true of the, the way people read Foucault as well what they were looking for was basically like an excuse not to have to you know, not to have to commit themselves to any sort of class analysis and and you know yet to somehow you know differentiate themselves from the, from the politics of the new right and its legacies Presumably one of the effects of that is to then also alienate a lot of the, the Marxist left from that kind of work and to discourage them from engaging with it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I, I mean, that was, um, and I think that is, that definitely did happen in, in the sort of 80s and 90s. I remember I, I never went to Marxism, the sort of Socialist Works Party conference, you know, annual conference but i remember seeing in the pro like i can't it, it might just have been one year it might have been like every year for several years they would have a section at their annual at their annual conference called enemies of marxism and it would all it would <laughs> and this is who it, it would usually be you know foucault or somebody like being at yeah you know, it would usually be them explaining like why foucault is an enemy of marxism so um, and yeah it definitely is true and definitely that definitely is the case and it also you know i mean to be fair it also provoked some really lazy readings on the part of those people i mean the you know the readings of people like david harvey you know the allusions made by people like david harvey for example to sort of friend that sort of so-called post-structuralism are very lazy and are very inaccurate in the way they represent it and it's kind of politics and projects so there was a little bit of that going on sort of both ways but yeah i think I mean, it really does. That is what, may, but I think also, I mean, one, one has to say that, I mean, what makes Lazarate's work fairly unique, in, in, including in the French context, not only in the British context, is that, you know, he's kind of maintained a certain commitment to writing in a way which does make quite clear. You know, he writes these relatively short books, which are often focused on some specifics of political sets of political circumstances, which do make quite clear what the kind of analytical purpose of some of those theoretical developments are, whereas, you know, even in France, I mean, there haven't been that many people who've wanted to do that. There was there was the generation who actually experienced 1968 and its aftermath, for whom none of that really needed to be explained. You know, they were living through it, um, and 
but certainly the kind of general, you know, people, you know, sort of my generation, such as it, you know, you can identify any such thing. Uh, French intellectuals doesn't seem to have really had any great interest in in that. But I mean, if you know, if you, I mean, French Deleuzeans today are, are just as kind of apolitical and just as and sort of aestheticist and kind of di aren't interested in any, you know, immediate political questions as sort of Anglo Deleuzeans. So. I think it probably probably we do have to say it has something to do with the, just the broad historical context of the you know, defeat of the radical left in the mid eighties and the fact that after that for a long time was, you had to look very hard for for actual sort of political movements or actual political causes with which you could sort of ally your your radical theory. But this is getting off the, it's getting away from your question a little bit. But I mean, it, yeah, I would say it. Yeah, it does. It it it, it does. You know. That that history has created a situation in which the sort of you know more orthodox self-identified or Marxist left does really tend not to engage with this stuff at all, and and um, and in fact instead like tends to engage with you know really much more conservative strands of thought. I mean, it's, it still amazes me the extent to which you know if you're a certain kind of like you know self-identifying Marxist intellectual, it becomes absolutely. You know, necessary at some point in your trajectory to fully embrace Freud as well, um, which is just sort of intellectually absurd and 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 um, yeah, and kind of lazy. Given that you know, you know, as a theory, as a theory of the psychic and the psychosocial, you know, Freud is very crude and very and from a long time ago, and and um, there's been a lot of subsequent work that you know, you could e engage with that would be very productive but it but yeah but it's it almost all of it in the in the imagination of that orthodox marxist tradition is, is somehow tainted by its association with tendencies like like structuralism and post-structuralism and schizoanalysis which they see as sort of as either just sort of liberal or as somehow sort of dubiously anarchistic yeah, I, th I think later I might ask you something about uh, Lazarato's view of people like Badiou and Slavoj Žižek because he's, uh, he's clearly not a fan. <laughs> um, uh, before we talk more about the book in, in some depth, I, I wonder if you could say something about Lazarato's sort of um, intellectual background and also his sort of biographical background, which is quite colourful given his, his uh, forced exile in, uh, in France and so on. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not an expert. I mean, it's not like you know we've hung out a bit, a little bit over the past week, but we, you know, I'd never met him before in person before a week ago. So, um, I mean, yeah, he he was. I mean, I mean, what I can say is he, he's not from a kind of privileged background. You know, unlike a lot of people, even sort of Italian radical philosophers, he's he's not from a sort of elite background, and uh, he was part of the group along with Antonio Negri and others who went into political exile in, in France uh, in the early 80s, in 1982, um, after, I mean, this is a story which is well known to a lot of, by a lot of people, but it, it, most people know this is a story about Negri, but actually there was a bunch of them that, it, that went through the same thing at the same time, that the, Ita the Italian state effectively was trying to, um, trying to hold sort of intellectuals and, and sort of radical philosophers legally responsible for the actions of the uh, the red brigades um you know the kind of the uh, the paramilitary the kind of ultra left paramilitary paramilitary uh groups who were sort of you know who were the italian equivalent of the red army faction so you know that like, the way i put this in and i can't remember where i wrote this but i said it was the equivalent in britain as if you know, the Thatcher government had tried to prosecute Stuart Hall for the Brixton riots. <laughs> you know, it was basically, it's basically that. So, and as I said, there's a whole bunch of them that went into political exile. And it was, I mean, it, it was widely understood as an act of deliberate repression um, in other European countries because it was because Mitter, the Mitterrand government you know, offered them political asylum and refused, refused to sort of extradite. Uh, so Maurizio is one of them, and he's been active. He's been, you know, in, on the sort of Parisian scene since then, you know, living in Paris. Uh, I think he hasn't doesn't have a kind of formal academic position. He's been involved in various kind of research projects and various political uh, projects and political action over that time. And um, you know, certainly the experience, <coughs> the analysis in in a political experiment in 
<clears throat> the book is called in French it's called Experimentation Politique and the, the, the literal translation would be is just political experiments and I sort of I managed to convince everybody that was quite an ugly sounding title in English that experimental politics would be better so but sometimes in my head I call it political experiments you know the book comes directly out of his experience as as one of the organizers and a sort of activist researcher around the um particular struggles around the sort of social economic and legal status of precarious certain kinds of precarious worker in in france uh, you know especially in the paris region so i think that's what i can say about the sort of biographical background i mean intellectually again he comes he belongs to that generation like negri and others who came out of the um the so-called autonomist or you know parisa uh, tendency you know, in italy um but they're very sort of quite distinctive sort of libertarian Marxism. But I think they've all, all of the people, all of the members of that cohort have gone in quite different directions. And I think in, and in some ways, I mean, one reason I'm kind of interested in Maurizio's work is in some ways he's gone in an intellectual direction and a political direction, which is, <clears throat> I think in many ways makes his work more relevant to uh, sort of British readership in particular, and probably sort of American as well, sort of left readership. Given it, you know, he's become increasingly, and, and I would say, and also actually more so since the publication of that book, concerned, for example, with questions of political strategy and the, necess the necessity of political strategy and organization in achieving sort of political goals, which is quite different from the you know, somewhat metaphysical emphases of people like Negri, who are sort of you know, from I think sort of political analysis is usually pretty much a kind of afterthought to, to, to wanting to make a set of ontological and metaphysical claims. So Lazarato's book takes as its jumping off point the 2003 dispute between French intermettants, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, workers working in the artistic and entertainment sectors of the French economy who were members of, of a mutualised system of social insurance that they could depend on during periods of unemployment. And the French government, which wanted to impose some sort of classically neoliberal reforms of the system. Could you say something about the, uh, the insurance system? What was it about it that was so intolerable to the French government and to French elites? OK, sure. Yeah. So the intermittence, I mean, intermittent is a specific kind of uh, legal sort of employment status in France. Uh, and it gets translated, you, it sometimes gets translated just as casual workers or intermittent workers but um it, it doesn't really work it's a specific sort of state i mean you could say you're intermittent worker but it, it's a specific status it doesn't just mean any old sort of precarious worker although part of their struggle is to kind of link up with precarious workers generally uh, and it's an it's a status which is uh, created um for the purpose, you know, in the process of setting up this scheme, which was actually set up before the war by the Popular Front government of the late thirties, the Jung's government, um, and it uh, and its purpose initially was to protect and kind of encourage the development of the French film industry. So, uh, and it was and it only applied initially to people in the in the film industry, and it was based on this recognition that people working in the film industry. You know, tended to work very, very intensively for quite short periods of time, and then would you know have, undergo sort of sustained periods of unemployment. So it's a sort of it is as you say, it's a mutualised social insurance system and a mutualised unemployment insurance system, uh, which completely collectivises and mutualises risk for all the people participating in it, and effectively redistributes income from the most successful and kind of most affluent. Uh, participants in it to the least successful and the least affluent and it's significant because it really you know it bears upon contemporary debates around you know the desire for a post-work society for example in that it sort of problematizes in some sense the, the very the very nature of work in the it, it institutionalizes the recognition that at least if you're engaged in certain kinds of you know so-called creative work that you know, you, you need periods of time to rest and to practice and to seek inspiration and to learn new skills, like none of which are going to be directly remunerative. And now the scheme, I mean, this, I mean, we can talk about why it became intolerable to French elites, both in kind of pragmatic economic terms and in ideological terms. Because uh, in pragmatic economic terms, the thing is, 
I mean, it, um, unpredictably, really, if you imagine we had a scheme like that in Britain, and, yeah, they could, yeah, you could imagine a world in which a scheme like that had been set up to protect the British film industry so in the 40s. And you could imagine the extent to which it would have it, it been extended subsequently because it's, it's ended up, it kind of expanded and expanded to include pretty much everybody working in the entertainment sector and then everybody, everybody working in what we would now call the creative industries. So it became hugely sort of expensive. And the scheme, which I, I'm still not sure, actually, I'm not sure exactly what its relationship was to the state. There was certainly, you know, the government, to some extent, had to underwrite it, even though it was a sort of semi-autonomous, mutualised scheme. And by the 2003, the scheme was absolutely huge in terms of the number of people in it, and it was massively in debt. Like, it was basically, you know, it, it was... It was it, had had huge debts it was clearly never going to be able to pay back so that was the kind of pragmatic conditions the ideological conditions evidently is that it completely goes against sort of neoliberal ideology on, on several different levels in that it doesn't force the individual worker to adapt themselves to the immediate demands of the labor market um, it doesn't force them to you know, adapt their creative practice and creative output to the demands of consumers it doesn't sort of discipline uh, the the workforce by forcing the least successful out of the profession into kind of you know less desirable but sort of market necessary professions like you know selling hamburgers or walking, working in call centres or whatever. Uh, all of the, all of which are things which neoliberal government policy is designed to make sure happen. So. And yeah, you know, fundamentally, it's it's, it's anti-competitive. You know, it's a mutualising, collectivising, equalising, an egalitarian system which neoliberalism completely objects to. It thinks that you that and the response of kind of governing elites was that this scheme was this kind of hideous anachronism that it needed to be replaced by a scheme you know, which, firstly, would just force lots of people out of the sector. Uh, indeed, into kind of you know other sectors that needed cheap labour, and um, would and would force the, those various kind of changes in their self conception, the kind of mode of subjectivity and their general behaviour, which I was just alluding to. Uh, so that is you know that that was the kind of both the pragmatic and the ideological basis for the it becoming a real sort of hate object for neoliberal reformers in the French government. I suppose it really conflicts with notions of meritocracy as well. I guess the idea that uh, you know it should be only be the uh, quote unquote uh, good artist who uh, you know yeah exactly to, yeah to and, it, and and it also but also it also but also it goes against the idea which is sort of always lingering behind that notion of meritocracy, especially in the creative sector. That well, really, what's good is what sells. You know that because you know. It, I mean, ultimately, the neoliberal idea is that, you know, as any kind of artist, you know, you should just, if you can't sell enough, if you can't sell enough to survive, then then you're not good, then you're a sort of failure. So, um, so it also goes against that idea, which I think is sort of, you know, it's uh, there's a tension there with 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 the kind of sell, with how meritocracy presents itself, but um, in that it presents itself as in some somehow always allowing kind of true talent to manifest itself but it's certainly yeah it's certainly um that kind of meritocratic ideal is you know is intimately tied to this sort of ruthless idea of market competition and mark and the market is the the only just arbiter of value and that and it's that that it really goes against very explicitly in the book, I mean, he has some very interesting things to say on the sort of formation of, of neoliberal subjectivity. Um, I mean, there was one line I was struck by where he said, I mean, this relates to the notion of sort of the idea of entrepreneurialism of the self and all that kind of thing. But he says the individual must think of themselves as a fragment of capital. Yes. Um, yeah. Could you say what he means by that? OK, well, I can say uh, what I would say about that is... Um... Yeah, the, the 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 ideal neoliberal subject, to some extent, you know, thinks of themselves as a kind of perpetual object of investment, something which you're constantly investing in, but but also as something which which is invested, yeah, you know, which which is this kind of nature of capital. Um, 
I think, I mean, a good example of this, I'm, all, I'm often quoting this example, actually. When, when student fees were first introduced, which was not in 2011, contrary to what many people believe, uh, but much earlier under the new Labour government, when a fee, sort of partial fees were first introduced, uh, Alan Finlayson uh, did a talk about, no, did he do a talk? About, he, I can't remember if he, did a, if he did a talk now, we just wrote an article. Um, about it and he made the point that the real kind of motivation for introducing student fees was this idea that that it was really desirable that students should come to think of their education as a sort of speculative investment you know that they're engaged in a kind of speculative exercise that would um, if successful result in their own increased value on the labor market and their own kind of raised status as human capital in a certain sense um and I think you know, that's a good example of, of what Maurizio is talking about there. I mean, I mean, this idea of human capital, the idea that a human being, the work of their skills can be understood as just equivalent to a type two capital and as something, as I say, which, uh, you know, which you invest in order, to, in order to get more of it, in order to increase its value. Uh, it's pretty old, I mean, it goes. It's been an it's an idea in kind of sort of near right wing economics going and sociology going back to the early sixties, at least. Uh, but it's very very kind of prevalent now, and it's pretty much. I mean, you can see it now. I mean, you see it now. As I say, in kind of higher education and sort of education policy, it's actually in terms of government policy, it's completely normative ideas. It's an idea which you, it's not. There isn't really much political scope to to even challenge. In your introduction to the book, you talk about how capital has a, has a sort of parasitic and, and quite ambivalent relationship with zones of creativity, uh, that capitalism must allow a degree of creative flourishing, but that at the same time it must be within quite defined limits in order to capture value and prevent the development of creativity that's antithetical to capital. Is that part of the problem with the intermittons, that the system of social insurance that they're part of, um, that the existence and extension of a system like that is potentially quite threatening to capital? Yeah, I think it is, yeah. Um, um, I, I think it is. I mean, I think probably on the basis of that analysis, I think you could you could imagine a situation in which you know capital was you know could you know made an accommodation uh with a system like the kind of intermittent scheme i don't think it i don't i mean in the end you know it's it, it's a sort of you know it, it's a type of welfare reform it's not really something that, that i'm not sure that the, the existence of a scheme like that necessarily yeah i'm trying to answer your question i say i'm not sure i'm not sure it does really threaten capitalism it, it was very much objectionable to neoliberalism as a specific mm strategy for the management of capitalism and a specific very dogmatic form of capitalism but i mean you could well why i think this is important to answer the question in this way actually is to say well i could well you can well imagine the situation in which sort of post neoliberal post post fordist you know silicon valley sort of platform capitalism sort of accommodates itself very well to the existence of um, schemes like um, the intermittent scheme and as long as they are organized in such a way that they don't really yeah, you know, that they continue to provide pools of talent and ideas from which they can draw, but which they don't really have to take sort of full responsibility for the social reproduction of. So I think something like that that scheme, I think it's I think it's specifically neoliberalism rather than capitalism as such that it's that it really posed a problem for. Because in some sense neoliberalism has sort of does object to the sort of necessary autonomy of those zones of creativity, I think more than other other modes of managing capitalism have, have tended to do historically, and that might be one reason, you know, for sort of capitalism. Why it might be one of neoliberalism's problems, actually, even on in capitalist terms, the fact that it's kind of it's sort of maniacal obsession with turning everybody into the same kind of sort of entrepreneur means that actually it doesn't it ends up destroying those sites of creativity. Um, and it's one reason why I think I don't like. I think I sort of think I sort of think there's a kind of imminent logic of sort of platform capitalism, which is is not is you know, is going to produce something is which goes against a certain kind of neoliberal logic, even while it's willing to sort of work with it up to a certain point. Um, so 
and I think that I mean, but I do think you know, I think I mean, for me, that analysis of uh, the sort of you know zones necessarily autonomous zones of creativity is still quite potent. I'd have to say I don't think, and I think it is sort of there. It is there in that book of Maurizio's. I, th I think in Maurizio's more recent work, actually, the more recent work, is especially the most recent work with Eric Elia, I'm not sure he would still endorse that view, though. I think he now has a much more pessimistic view of the sort of capitalism's capacity for, you know, what in another register you might call total subsumption, and also and specifically the sorts of ways in which uh, the military-industrial complex has historically always been implicated in sort of the constitution of the most important zones of sort of invention and creativity. He engages with uh, the work of Boltanski and Cipello in the book, um, specifically their book, uh, The New Spirit of Capitalism. Um, and he sort of takes issue with their concept of, uh, well, their sort of division between two critiques of capitalism, so the, the social critique and the artistic critique. Could you maybe say something about those two forms of critique and what Lazzarato's uh, objection is? So Boltanski and Cipello, I mean, they come out of that kind of this kind of sort of tradition of economic sociology that you know, I don't really know that, that much about. I know that it exists, and I sort of know who the sort of key reference points are. But it, and they have they do have this very weird sort of approach, which is to posit what they call critique as if it's a sort of agency um, with, or by which they mean just the general discursive tendencies to make criticisms of something and there and my kind of summary of their position is that there are historically through the history of capitalism there are, there are two basic critiques of capitalism which get reiterated in different forms at different times and that's what they call the artistic critique and the social critique and to put it in a nutshell, the artistic critique says the problem with capitalism is it's boring. Um, it produces conformity, it produces a certain inauthenticity of experience. And the problem and the social critique says that the problem with capitalism is that it is unjust, that it produces you know, injustice, inequality and exploitation to unacceptable degrees. Now, exactly what valency sort of moral or political valency they attribute to these critiques. It seems to me to vary from place to place. Um, and one of the reasons why Lazzarato and lots of other people have objected to that their position is sometimes they appear to more or less dismiss the, the so-called artistic critique as a sort of bohemian, a sort of bohemian posturing and to argue that in fact only the sort of moral only the, the social critique has ever had any real political force or moral authority and i would say I mean, the comparison i've made again i can't remember where i did this now but the the comparison i've made is with a sort of blue labor position that are taken to a certain logical conclusion if that's your view if the whole sort of aesthetic you know rejection of you know of um capitalism's tendency to philistinism and alienation and producing a very alienated culture is rejected and that if all you want if and if you all you want is sort of um you know a, a sort of social egalitarianism then you can end up with a situation in a position which for example is quite sort of socially conservative um in some of its implications you don't necessarily i'm not sure i don't think that's where bottoms and Chappello go at all but you, you sort of can um, but in other places, and they do sometimes seem to say this, and there's an interview with uh, Botanski, I think, in, in Multitude, which seems to be one of the main sources that uh, Maurizio often refers to when referring to them, which uh, Botanski sort of polemically does really seem to say, well, the artistic critiques never gets you anywhere, the social critique is the one that matters. Um, is, is the argument also that... That, that in fact actually it does get you somewhere and that that somewhere is neoliberalism well i'll come on to that because i don't think that i don't think that i don't think that is exactly their argument mm -hmm. because um my reading i mean this is my reading uh, you know um of the the way they use those terms and make that analysis in the new spirit of capitalism in the big book is a bit different is that they don't really they do seem to me to acknowledge that 
often the artistic critique does have some real political force. And they also acknowledge that occasionally in the history of sort of anti-capitalist radicalism, the artistic critique and the social critique can come together. Uh, and I would say, if that's your perspective, then it's pretty, I think it's analytically pretty useful because you, know, you can identify these moments that are by sort of fairly universal ascent, moments of extreme, you know, the sort of you know, important moments of general radicalization. You know, the moment of the counterculture you know, and, and its civil alliances with the, the new left in the late 60s and early 70s, the moment of uh, French, kind of, no, not French, Russian sort of avant gardeism um, in the immediately immediate post revolutionary period. And you can say, well, look, it's actually these moments when you bring together this artistic critique and the social critique in the moment when you really get somewhere, you, know, you really get some traction in terms of a kind of broad um, sort of democratized, you know, broad push to democratize social relations. And their analysis, I think, in, I mean, the, what are they preoccupied with? The, one of the questions they're preoccupied with in the new spirit of capitalism is the question of what is the kind of historic destiny of that sort of um, the sort of you know bohemian counterculture of the late sixties and the early seventies and its relationship to the post forties neoliberal consumer culture and that emerges in the eighties onwards and um, the, what they're responding to is the fact that it is a really a cliche of commentary on that history in France and elsewhere from nineteen seventy eight onwards to make the argument, which is essentially the argument made, for example, by Adam Curtis in Britain in, the, in his series The Century of the Self, that... Adam Smith is to blame for neoliberalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah but, well, that was... Yeah, that... Uh, and, and in The Century of the Self, he's not talking about Patterson, he's talking about, he's talking about, you know, he talks about the counterculture, but his only examples of it are kind of, you know, people doing est and you know, sort of self-help and stuff. It's not... Um, and this idea that, well, that all, all that sort of, um, I mean, really the argument, I mean, his argument is borrowed, and most of his examples, actually, they're directly borrowed from a book called The, the Culture of Narcissism by Christopher Lash, which was published in 79. Um, so really this critique, actually, I've not thought of that before, actually, but the Christopher Lash book, Culture of Narcissism, comes out in 79 in the States. This is a year after Regis Debray, the kind of, you know, French radical, you know, famously starts saying that, well, that, that 68 that had simply led to this kind of culture of sort of, you know, hedonistic consumerism that was going to be largely captured by the new right in the 80s. So uh, around that moment, there's this tendency emerges to start making this claim um, that's, that really there was nothing really at stake in the sort of radicalism of 1968, that it was just a sort of precursor to the emergence of postmodern consumer capitalism. And, and Boltanski and Cipello's response to that is, is actually, it's a re, it, what they do is they do a sort of, you know, their, their main object of analysis is actually management theory textbooks because they're, and it, and it's, a really, it's, it's always a really interesting area to look at. They make a really convincing argument that if you actually want to look at where the capitalist class does its ideological work, go look at the places where it is actually explicitly training people how to be members of the capitalist class and that's in the business management theory textbooks and so and they and they find in all the business management theory textbooks in the 80s are promoting a set of ideas like egalitarian relationships networks flat management personal you know creativity personality uh, which are associated with the counterculture in the late 60s and which are very different to what a management theory textbook would say in the 60s are still promoting, which is this ideal of, essentially the ideal of a highly efficient, highly regulated, highly centralised or corporate culture administering a highly centralised, highly conformist, highly hierarchical, you know, broader sort of commercial culture in which the whole population can participate. Uh, and they're right about that. And I, you know, I actually went and did some research once to see if you could make the same analysis about British and American uh, management theory textbooks in the 60s and 80s, and you can. But then, but they go into this very detailed historical analysis to work out, like, well, exactly at what point do, do that does the sort of capitalist class and its agencies start to try to embrace some of these ideas? And their argument is actually, their argument actually is that 
what it's quite late in the process and it's quite a reactive process and then what happens over the course of the 70s is really until quite late in the 70s uh, the capitalist class wants to sort of um well i should say what's going on in the 70s really which is there's you know there's a major crisis of the kind of post-war social formation and keynesian welfare capitalism and everything that goes with it and but their argument is that capital, and this you know, really tries to tries to quite hard to stabilise that situation for quite a long time. And they make the point that, for example, the Nixon administration in America, the Heath government in Britain, sort of conservative governments in the early 70s, they, they flirt a little bit with kind of proto-neoliberalism. But ultimately, they sort of, you know, they, their nerve fails, and actually, they they spend more on public services and social programs than than their predecessor governments. Um, and and their argument is that really the sort of the artistic critique made by uh, the counterculture of you know sort of Fordist, sort of quite conformist Fordist capitalist culture is so potent that there's this entire cadre of so middle class of graduates who are just not willing to take on the job of administering capital, uh, capital, and they're just not going to. They are going. They are genuinely becoming anti-capitalist revolutionaries, and that capitalism is forced to adopt these sorts of techniques, forced to adopt this sort of a network ideology, and forced to really to sort of concede uh, the possibility of a culture in which. A, a much you know more diverse set of lifestyles will be tolerated etc um than had been previously in order to essentially to persuade this sort of middle class uh, this kind of cadre of graduates to to get back on board with, with the business of managing capital instead of being anti-capitalist revolutionaries uh, my argument has always been if you actually go and look at the, their historical argument it's the same argument made by hart and negri which is that post-Fordism is a reaction, is a response to which is which by capital, which is forced on it by the kind of revolutionary upsurge of '68. Uh, which is also the same argument, more or less, made by Stuart Hall and his colleagues in in 1978 in their book *Policing the Crisis*. Um, now, Maurizio doesn't really isn't interested in that. You, you might you might want to edit all that because <laughs> Maurizio Maurizio's not really he do, he's not really he doesn't particularly have any interest in that question of how Boltzkanti uh, and Cipello are contributing to that argument over the historiography of 68. He, he doesn't have much interest about uh, in that, in the book uh, that we're talking about today, and really in subsequent, in his most recent work, which I alluded to earlier, he's actually very quite dismissive. He's much more dismissive of the whole legacy of 68, actually, and a sort of 68 thought, which he sees as having you know, sort of ultimately gone nowhere. So, but in the book, what he specifically what he's objecting to is what he sees as this sort of both a moralistic uh, distinction between the artistic critique and the social critique as a distinction between kind of bourgeois bohemianism and authentic you know, class politics. But also analytically, he makes the point that well, in the case of precarious workers in the cultural sector, it absolutely, it's a completely impossible to make any such distinction. And that in the case of the precise struggle that he's engaged in, he is, um, that absolutely, that there is, you can't separate the artistic and the social critiques of capitalism, which are both are absolutely implicit in the very existence of a, an organised campaign to defend the intermittents. But he's, it seems to me, he's not quite saying that this is, generalizable to all of the workforce now but th this is the tendency yeah and, the, and that that's going to lead to that division between the social and the artistic critique being more unreal as, as time goes on yeah i think that's right yeah and, th and that's consistent with this general you know uh, this general sort of autonomous post-autonomous understanding of the social factory, the way in which you know, we're in a phase of capitalist development, whereby all of our kind of activity, all and all of our sort of everyday communicative and creative activity is, you know, it becomes um, a site of value production, sort of value creation for capital. Uh, and from that, so from that point of view, it just becomes sort of meaningless that you can't really. And I think he has a good argument actually. It's a good argument that 
you could, I mean, you know, the book was done sort of 10 years ago. Alternatives Chapello were writing 20 years ago, but you could say today, like, if you look at sort of platform, platform society, sort of the society produced by platform capitalism, and say, well, is our, you know, are we making an artistic or are we making a social critique? Are we making a social critique just of the fact that, you know, Zuckerberg's got all the money and that um, people are being exploited? Or are we making some, some version of the artistic critique by saying that, well, the forms of communication which um, platform, you know, capitalist platforms force us into are inherently limited and to, to some extent alienating, and that they, even when they're not, that the fact that our communicative creativity is constantly being preyed upon as they accumulate data about us. Um, and you have to say, well, it's, it's just both. I mean, it's just not, you can't separate those things really in understanding it. So I think. I think you're right that that is his argument in the book that there's a general tendency towards the, the kind of generalization of, of forms of labor within which um for which that that distinction between artistic and social critique makes no sense and i think clearly he was actually right about that and i suppose potentially that's a cause for some optimism if that division has been something of a an achilles heel in the past yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, but I think I mean, and I was have to say, Maurizio right now is not optimistic. So you know, <laughs> uh, I, I think you could you could definitely draw from you, the position in that book, sort of applied to the current situation, and especially the situation in Britain. Uh, I think would lead to a certain degree of optimism, and that's, I suppose, uh, I mean, one thing I would say. I think I'm always a bit wary. I mean, you've, you've got to operate at quite high levels of abstraction if you're going to take analyses which are basically based on French, Italian or Spanish politics and apply them to sort of Northern European, in, including British politics, because uh, the sort of political traditions are so different and, and the certain features of the culture are so different. But, but I would say, you know, for example, just in, in very kind of loose terms, uh, I mean, one of the claims I keep wanting to make, and you know, I've been making really for the past sort of four years since the kind of moment of the debates around blue labour in the Labour Party is that well, it's really a mistake to think that sort of the working class, you know, working class people don't have, you know, have these sorts of inherently um, socially conservative and culturally conservative tendencies which are which are attributed to them in the imaginary. Uh, you know, of the kind of labour right and of a certain kind of, um, well, in fact, in the minds of lots of people, you know, in the minds of the people programming the Labour Live Festival, you know, for example, you know, <laughs> because there's just no, you know, because the, the kind of, the, it's just not true that you're working class people or just a, a sort of anti-intellectual, they don't think and they, they don't like, they have no kind of sympathy whatsoever with sort of any form of bohemian culture or any kind of cultural radicalism. Because if that were true, then the whole history of music, you know, musical you know, sort of innovation in Britain would be totally different because it's almost entirely a history of working class people engaged in very self-conscious forms of, you know, of aesthetic avant-gardism, you know, going back to the 60s. If it were true, then you know, they wouldn't all be buying iPhones, they wouldn't all be buying computers, they wouldn't all be buying, you know, technologies which are apparatuses for, you know, participating in this highly sophisticated form of, you know, symbol manipulation and information manipulation. Yeah, I mean, I, I sometimes think it's it's a form of projection, particularly when it comes to kind of um, middle-class liberals in the media who, who seem to have extremely sort of... Um, you know, quite dull sort of aesthetic tastes, and they seem to think that everybody else is is like that. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, um, I I just agree with you. I mean, there's just this tendency to, and uh, and and yeah, and, I mean, and I think, um, I mean, Maurizio's kind of strong critique of Botanski Cipello, which again, I'm, I don't think is necessarily an entirely fair critique. Would be that that is that's what's going on there. Actually, that's going on with the, the positing of these social and artistic critiques as a sort of, you know, radically separate types of critique of capitalism is they're, you know, essentially projecting a quite a conservative, you know, professorial French Socialist Party bourgeois um, sort of, you know, cultural conservatism. Just going back to what you were saying about the shift from the Fordist era to the neoliberal era, 
as, as you say, Lazarato is not particularly interested in that question, but some of the things he says does seem to touch on that question. So, for example, he describes neoliberalism as a, uh, as a revenge on the New Deal. I'm quite sympathetic to, to your position that capitalism is quite reactive and that it responds to the, the dynamism of, of, of the workers' uh, movement. But clearly, neoliberalism allows capital to do things it couldn't do in a previous period. It allows a greater degree of exploitation and inequality, which at least seems to suggest that the turn to neoliberalism was a far more active move on the part of, uh, of capital. Yeah, no, well, I think that's right. I think, and I mean... I mean, this is something I've written before, but the, that analysis, the pure kind of um, Negrian analysis that capital is just reactive and just parasitic and it, it's just forced to sort of adapt itself to the revolutionary episodes of 68, it's not totally, it has, it's a very important part, element of the story and, and it's one that I think it's often important to repeat more than any other because you don't hear it enough. But in and of itself it's not adequate to the analysis of that historical process because it doesn't allow for the fact that uh, it's it, important sections of capital always wanted to do the stuff they finally were able to do from the from the 80s onwards you know that throughout the period of the new deal and the period of fordist industry you know there were sections of capital and sections of the political right who were deeply unhappy about where they were and wanted to sort of break free. So, and we're looking for any kind of opportunity to do so. And there's no question that the technological revolution, the sort of cybernetic revolution, enabled them to do that. And it enabled them, and it would have enabled them to do that to some extent, whether or not there had been a kind of social, political, cultural challenge uh, to the social and sort of cultural settlement of Fordism from the 60s onwards. So, that is definitely true. And of course, the, the point Maurizio and uh, Erika are making in much more recent work is that uh, the, an awful lot of that technological revolution was really driven by the military-industrial complex. So the military-industrial complex are really the sponsors of the development of, sort of computer technology, internet, communications, etc., network communications. And those technologies, although to, to a certain extent they... Are also developed by some people, influenced by kind of countercultural ideas, kind of radical ideas. That's also part of it. Um, they also they also do come from that military-industrial machine, and they are really the tools which, from the seventies onwards, enable uh, finance capital specifically and, and the kind of agents of neoliberalism to uh, hegemonise the, the situation of crisis, which comes out of the sixties. And 70. So yeah, that I think that is definitely true. I mean, what an important point to make here is, that I think, again, I mean, this is really sort of a simple point, but the analytical distinction between industrial capital and finance capital is always really useful for, for thinking about that process. Because, I mean, really what happens in the post-war period is there's a, there's a sort of alliance between industrial capital, manufacturers, and the state, and unions, um, and the kind of general population and what really gets sort of um, uh, subdued during that period is the power of finance capital which really loses a huge amount of sort of moral legitimacy and political influence after the 1929 crash and, and crisis but historically over most of the history of capitalism in most countries finance and certainly in, in Britain and the States it's finance capital, which has clearly been hegemonic within the capitalist class. It's that it's finance capital, which has been the hegemonic fraction, and that kind of um, yeah, that basic neo, that basic David Harvey analysis of neoliberalism as basically a project to restore the power of finance capital after the seventies is really crucial, and it, it is that kind of technological revolution which gives them the tools to be able to to restore their authority. Um, and it's, uh, so I think, yeah, so in all those different ways, and my answer to your question is yes, that is, I mean, that is a really important, uh, that is a really important part of the story. One really uh, interesting thing he says, I mean, it's, it's kind of obvious when you read it, but he, he makes the point that if, if you're going to have societies like ours with, you know, extreme um, polarisation of, of power and wealth, 
the the sort of the production of, of affects of, of fear and mutual mutual fear and competition and so on is is absolutely you know absolutely crucial for maintaining the the, the system D- does that sound right to you yeah absolutely yeah i mean i think that's um yeah uh, i mean it's i mean partly that's not a new observation i mean the you know divide and conquer bit being the logic of, of rulers is a really old sort of observation. Um, but I also, but yeah, I think, um, I think, yeah, neoliberalism absolutely does rely on the production of a tendency towards sort of fearful affects towards seeing other people as a problem rather than seeing other people as a solution. I mean, that, that's the, I mean, the, that, that's my formulation of it, you know, that in my last book is that, if fundamentally neoliberalism requires you know it wants to encourage people to see other people as a problem you know they're they're, you know, they're a problem you have to manage they're not you know the source of you know everything good in, in life and everything that makes life worth living which is clearly actually true um so yeah and i think that is, that is really sort of um essential and I think, you know, affect, I mean, the other thing to say is that, I mean, thinking about it in terms of a register of affect is that, I mean, from this sort of Spinoza's Deleuzean, uh, or even from a sort of Nietzschean perspective, um, I mean, what negative affects like fear, um, what they do is they they make people, they make groups and, and they make, you know, particular people just less able to act in the world. They make them less capable of acting in any kind of productive way or any kind of creative way. Um, and I think, if, I mean, I mean, my analysis, which is very much influenced by uh, Maurizio's, but this is my my phrase more than his, is that that um, that really ultimately, um, cap, you know, neoliberal capitalism in particular wants us to be afraid of our own of our own sort of creative potential. It wants us to see our own creative potential, which is indissociable from our capacity to formulate productive relations with other people, you know, on whatever time scale. Uh, and it wants us actually to, to to be sort of afraid of that. I mean, that is the sort of ultimate logic of alienation in a, in a certain sense. It wants us to see that as a problem which we have to sort of deal with. We have to. You know, we have to sort of neutralise, and we have to sort of, you know, we experience our own potency as something which is frustrating because we can't really exercise it because the institutional and material circumstances which we find ourselves in make it impossible to exercise in the ways we'd like to, and then that frustration becomes a basis for you know all kinds of therapeutic interventions, you know, from smoking to self-medicating, you know, hyperconsumption. You know, pointless, you know, pointless overindulgence in holidays and travel because that makes you feel like you can actually do something just by going somewhere. And I think all of that is bound up with that basic logic of fear that that logic of the logic of fear is the logic of making of seeing others as the as the problem rather than as the solution. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if you'd agree, but my feeling is that those affects really um, are pretty widespread on amongst people on the left and have a very debilitating effect on the capacity of the left to do anything and i i wonder if you think that more that the left should think more about those uh what to do about that problem um i'm not sure if they're more prevalent on the left than anywhere else oh sorry not not more but you know yeah no well they're definitely there yeah they are definitely there um and i I, I mean, I would have to say, to be honest, I, I think sort of people do know they are. I think people are. There is a general, you know, it's if you if you talk to almost anyone, just to be in the Labour Party, you know, nobody. I mean, I was going to start this sentence again, but I mean, one way one way of sort of thinking about that is thinking about the way in which, you know, there's a kind of persistent feeling that the kind of actual institutional and social culture of the left sort of doesn't do enough to overcome those feelings of alienation and kind of isolation and that the most basic instantiation of that failure is the fact that you know meetings are you know sort of political meetings are you know are often quite boring they're quite alienating they don't really feel like places at which you're forming you're experiencing sort of joyous affect um 
But I would also say that that observation is just a sort of truism. That like no one, there's hardly anyone, you know, even the people who sort of go to those meetings a lot and you know aren't completely put off by them, who doesn't think that, who doesn't sort of know that's a problem on some level and wouldn't ideally like to overcome it. It's the to some extent, you know, we don't really have the material resources to to overcome those things a lot of the time. That we can't. That it's we can only really. It's quite relatively rare that we get um, occasions upon which we can do anything about it. Um, so I sort of think, and I and I sort of think it is. Um, I'm fair, and, and I'm fairly sort of optimistic that you know, since the sort of emergence of the, the Corbyn movement, which apart from anything else has met, has seen a massive increase in the sort of institutional and material resources of the organised left and the. You know, just the fact that there's kind of, you know, there's now half a million people sort of willing to kick in a few quid every month, you know, to the Labour Party or Momentum or whatever, you know, means that there are, there are a set of resources available now which just weren't available for, for a whole generation, you know, weren't available from the mid-80s onwards. And I think, I think even though, um, I mean, even though I think Labour Live is going to be, you know, boring and embarrassing, you know, just <laughs> the fact that anyone's even thought that might be something worth doing, uh, is a massive advance, you know, on the situation two years ago. But also, um, I I do have to ask you, Jeremy, because I haven't seen the lineup. Who who's on there that you object to? Well, there's, there's no one I object to. It's just it looks. It's just the whole package looks incredibly boring. It's just, <laughs> you know, so and no, you object to everyone. No, I don't. I don't object <laughs> to anyone. But there's no individual component. I mean, there's something about the way in which the whole things of you know everything is an assemblage, and this looks like a boring one. So it doesn't look. <laughs> There's no individual performer I have a problem with, or I, I think, but there isn't anybody that anyone I've ever even met would actively go out of their house to go and see, you know. Sure. So, um, and it, I mean, it looks to me like it's been programmed to look like a sort of Capital One sort of festival, you know, and the, the, the people programming it, that's their idea of what a sort of popular event should be. It should be something that Capital Gold might have organised, you know, Heart London or something. um but i just but the fact that it's happening at all you know it's it's decades since the labor party has tried to do it it tried to do anything like that uh, or wanted to do anything like that and i think so i think that that problem that that you identify is is there but I, i don't think it's one that people really need telling is there i think that and I think that to the extent that the you know we that they keep being the material resources to address it, we'll start to address it. And you know, by contrast, you know, I've mentioned Labour Live, but we could also talk about the World Transformed, which I think has been really, uh, you know, the people organising the World Transformed have been, you know, directly influenced by people like Lazzarato, you know, you know um, and others. Um, to think about these issues, to think about those issues of affect and the affective status of the, the affective nature of the events they produce. And that thinking has borne, you know, immediate consequences that they, those events have not only been like fantastically successful on their own terms, they've also been politically sort of significant in that they really, you know, the first world transform is a real turning point insofar as how, to what extent, the sort of Guardian commentariat and even people like Tom Watson felt able to just completely to dismiss momentum as a political force. Like up to that point, they were just utterly derisive and hostile. And after the first world transformed, uh, you know, their position was, you know, they, they kept having to continue. Well, there's clearly something good going on here. There's something, something kind of positive about this movement that we have to acknowledge. And, and it's kind of continued to have that status. You know, the last one was really sort of extraordinary. Uh, events that hadn't been anything like on the British left since the eight, since elite world, there hadn't been anything in, you know, in my, you know, during my sort of adult life. So I can sort of say that unproblematically. So, and so I would say, yeah, I mean, you're right that all, everything you say, what you say is true, but I'm also sort of optimistic that quite a lot of people get that. A lot of people get that. A lot of people are trying to do stuff about it. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you like the show, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. You can also follow the pod on Facebook and Twitter, at Poll Theory Other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.